you have a Bible, I'd ask that you open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, tells us something that none of us really want to hear. It's something that we all know is true. It's something that millions of dollars are spent every year to try and prevent. But the reality that we're reminded of is this. Our bodies are wasting away. (laughs) And for the Apostle Paul, his body was wasting away because of the immense persecution that he was receiving because he was preaching about Jesus. But not only are we reminded of that stark reality of mortality, Paul also gives us something that we all want to hear. Something that is absolutely vital for us when the fading of the physical body creeps in and starts to encroach upon our soul. Those times or moments when we are tempted to despair or even a deeper level of depression because things are just hard. Life is hard. The body is hard. I don't see the progress that I want to see in my own life and I don't see the progress I want to see in the way I'm serving the Lord and calling others to him as well. He reminds us that even though the body fails, that God renews us every day. Listen listen to the way that he says this. He says, so we do not lose heart, verse 16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so if you want encouragement in the midst of a difficult life, if you want to serve the Lord with your life and you recognize that serving him can be hard, maybe you feel underprepared, maybe you feel under pressure, maybe you feel like you're physically unable, today we learn about the source of true power that comes for living faithfully in this life. And so follow with me as we read together 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Starting at verse 7, this is what it says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed... And so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jars of clay were common items in the first century. They were used for holding grain, for keeping household goods, for transporting oil, and perhaps maybe for some even to hide something in plain sight. A jar that was made of clay was an item that would last for a short number of years, and then it would crack, or one of your kids would knock it off the counter, or it would eventually break down and be discarded. Nearly every archaeological dig of a city in the Middle East or any ancient city would have jars of clay or portions of jars of clay that were found. Jars of clay were ordinary. They were useful, but they were fragile. And Paul says that this is the way that our body is. Our body is like a jar of clay. But it's a jar of clay that is holding within it a tremendous treasure. The treasure that it holds can be described as strong, even though the jar is fragile. It is so strong, in fact, that he lists it in the previous section. This treasure, in verse 6, is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The treasure is true knowledge of God in all of his glory. The thing that can change everything for you can be known. The person who oversees it all can be known. And he is glorious and magnificent. And to know him is the greatest treasure that you can have. You can know deep within you an eternal, indestructible reality. And that knowledge is kept in a very temporary and destructible body for the handful of years that we have on this earth. What an incredible paradox. Something eternal and indestructible kept within something temporary and destructible. You would expect maybe something different. But this paradox is this way for a reason. And it says the reason in verse 7. The reason for this is to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. There are a lot of reasons why we would be tempted to think that we are powerful in and of ourselves. Powerful enough to accomplish all of the things that we want to in life and powerful enough to accomplish the things that we believe God wants us to do. 
I mean, our natural ability, our advanced education, our reputation, our great wealth relative to those in human history can all give us a false sense of accomplishment. And beyond that, it's really easy to assume that someone else should display a certain amount of power to accomplish the things of God as well, especially if they are serving the Lord. That type of power would be indicative of the fact that God is really great and he only uses great people to accomplish his great work. It validates the claim in a sense. That was certainly the case with Paul. The Corinthians assumed that if indeed he was an apostle and if indeed he carried such a valuable message that was truly transformative to people, then clearly his own life should have a level of success and strength that accompanied the message. And this makes sense. Because if you carry something of great value, you carry it in the safe. If you are carrying a treasure or asking somebody else to carry a treasure, you're having him carried in a strong box that's handcuffed to your arm. <laughs> like all the old mobster movies. You don't have them carry something of infinite value in something that is so fragile that it could break. And so Paul says, that's not the way that God works. That Christians, that you don't have power in and of yourselves, but rather Christians are vessels for God's power that is displayed specifically in your weakness. And he uses his life to illustrate the point. Verses 8 and 9, he gives these five contrasting statements of weakness and power, of suffering and perseverance. This is what he says. Look at it with me. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. What does it mean to be perplexed? To be perplexed means I've tried something, I failed, I was confused, I tried something else, I failed, I was confused, I tried something else, I failed, and I was confused. I expected a certain result, and I didn't get it, and I sat back and said, huh, I don't get it. Why does not this work the way that I'm thinking it should? Paul says he was perplexed, but not driven to despair. He was persecuted but not forsaken. To be persecuted means that there are people that rise up against you and cause you harm because of what you're doing. But to not be forsaken means you still know who and what you belong to. You're not alone in the midst of that. And, you're, and Paul says that he was struck down but not destroyed. Carrying the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And so when you stop and you pause for a minute, you start to think about the picture that he's painting about his own life and really how incredibly weak it is. How the, trump, the troubles that were descending upon him were soul-crushing realities. And the list it moves from bad to worse. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, carrying the body of death. 
That's a hard life. (laughs) That's a life where you would be constantly tempted to despair. (laughs) That's a life where you would say, I don't know if I can continue. And he's saying in some way, shape, or form, not only does he live this life, but the followers of Jesus do as well. But he also gives the incredible list or power of strength that's ascending from good to great. He's not crushed. He's not driven to despair. He's not forsaken. He's not destroyed. The life of Jesus is manifest in our bodies, he says, and it all points to the reality that our physical weakness in this life leads one to look upon the life and the strength of the Lord Jesus. And he might Verse 11 summarizes saying something like this. We're in the process of dying physically so that you might see the wonderful, true life of Jesus that you can have spiritually. And so here, the weakness power principle begins to show itself. This is the theme that Paul refers to in this text, and it's an underlying theme of the whole book of 2 Corinthians. And it's this, very simply stated, in our great weakness, God displays his great power. That's it. (laughs) Because you are weak, it shows that God is strong. In our great weakness, God displays his might. The ordinary clay pot of your body will fail, but the life-giving, life-transforming knowledge of the glory of God that is displayed in the face of Jesus Christ will emanate forth in you and through you and from you in such a way that it points to God's power. So you feel like quitting. Life is hard. You feel like giving up. You're wondering when you'll be strong enough to handle what God calls you to do by Christian witness. You'll be wondering when you're strong enough to resist the temptation to sin that continues to hound you. Well, in your weakness, God displays his power. How does that work? This is how it works. When you are at the very end of your resources, when you've tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed again, and you have nothing left to give, when Life is a soul-crushing experience for you. You have a choice. You can either wallow in despair or you can turn to the Lord. And when you turn to the Lord, then God decides to accomplish something through you or in you, even when you're able to accomplish nothing, then there's absolutely no question in your mind or in the mind of anybody else who really knows you how you did that thing that you did. Or how that person responded the way that they did. Or how the work was accomplished the way that it did. How you had power all of the sudden. Even though you were barely standing. And yet something amazing happens through you. There's only one answer at that moment. How did it happen? That's the power of God. And he points to the principle of this weakness, power, principle that we live in that is displayed by Jesus himself. 
Because here's the principle of the cross. He says it in verse 12. Death is at work in us, but life in you. When Paul says death is at work in him, of course, he's not saying that he's dead. He's saying he's in the process of dying. The body's wasting away. But he's willing to endure the suffering of dying for those who hear the gospel so they might experience real, genuine, true life in God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He was the example of the one who was willing to die so that others might live as he went to the cross. His physical weakness and suffering and his death displayed the greatest power of God in saving souls. His life for yours. And that is the same power that God is working right now in those of you who are following him in faithfulness. And so, knowing that God's power is at work, even though you are very fragile, even though you might be suffering, Paul makes a compelling statement about what happens next. When you know that God is at work, even though you're weak, what do you do? Well, that belief leads to a natural outcome of being a witness for him. And this witness is resting in a confidence and it's resting in a hope. Look with me at verse 13. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been spoken or what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul has a confidence here. His confidence is that the Spirit, this Holy Spirit of God, and the Spirit's work in the inspired word is the same Spirit that will empower him as he speaks and work in the hearts and minds of those he speaks to. He quotes Psalm 116. In Psalm 116, David is near death. <laughs> His jar of clay is about to be shattered. And yet, he was delivered. God delivered him from his physical suffering. And as a result, he gives praises to God and he expresses his confidence. Listen to just a bit of Psalm 116, verses 8 to 10. This is what David says. He says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed. <laughs> Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. In the worst time of my life, I still believed God. That's confidence. <laughs> Paul takes that confidence and he applies it to what Christians speak today. Here's the application, I think. This is the reason why you can share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus because you have confidence that the same spirit who inspired the word, the same spirit who indwells you if you are a Christian is the same spirit who works in the hearts and minds of those you're speaking to 
to save them. Guys, it took me a lot of years to develop that type of confidence to get past the fear of rejection that comes when you talk to people about the most important things. Um, If only we truly believe and work in confidence that God is the one who can only save somebody. It's not how winsome I am. It's not how compelling you are in a conversation. It's not that you get all the right words in there. But when you start to share about the good news of Jesus Christ to forgive sinners and how he is a loving Savior who is gentle and lowly and wants to draw you to himself for your good, that if God, the Spirit of God who inspired the gospel word and the spirit of God who is one with the son of God and the spirit of God who indwells you is going to save somebody, the greatest miracle of them all, then he's going to do it whether you are winsome or not, (laughs) compelling or not. He chooses to use us anyway. And if God lifts the veil as we talked about last week, then that person will be saved. (laughs) And if God chooses not to lift the veil just yet, then there's nothing you can do to save them. That's God's work. But he asks you and challenges you and commands you to participate in it. I think about Dr. Paul Brand, how he was speaking to a medical college in India. And he said, Let your light shine, so shine before men that they may behold your good works and glorify your Father. And in front of the lectern was an oil lamp with its cotton wick burning from the shallow dish of oil. And as he preached, the lamp ran out of oil and the wick burned dry and the smoke made him cough. And he said, immediately taking the opportunity, some of us here are like this wick. (laughs) We're trying to shine for the glory of God, but we stink. (laughs) And that's what happens when we use ourselves as the fuel for our witness rather than the Holy Spirit. Wicks can last indefinitely, burning brightly and without irritating smoke if the fuel, (laughs) the Holy Spirit, is in constant supply. And so that is the confidence that Paul has, even though he is struck down again and again in this gospel ministry. He has confidence in the Spirit. And he also has hope. Verse 14 points us to how Paul can risk even further harm than he's already been because you know how it goes. You try something once and it hurts. You think twice about trying it again. You try something twice and it hurts. If you're really stupid, you might do it again. You try something three times and it hurts, you're out. I'm, I'm done. Some people look at their, their gospel witness that way. I tried once, failed. Tried twice, didn't work. Tried a third time. I'm never doing that again. But Paul says we can. We can risk further because we have a very specific hope True hope is not just a mindless or vague optimism. True hope has a confidence and a trust in a very specific result. 
I think of the secular philosopher Bertrand Russell, who gave a famous expression of hopelessness in his book, A Free Man's Worship. Listen to how depressing this outlook on the world is as he evaluates what's happening, what's important, successes and failures, and where it all leads. Bertrand Russell writes, the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to the extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of the truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Summary. Humans can do great things. It doesn't mean anything. It's all going to burn. You can accomplish wonderful things in this life. It will all be lost in the destruction of the universe. The only way that you can truly function in the world today is if you recognize that it's all meaningless, it's all despair, and then maybe, just maybe, you can build on the foundation of that despair and learn how to do something useful with your life. How depressing is that? We need hope. But for most people, they're not thinking about these things in sort of a cerebral way like Bertrand Russell. They base their lives on some kind of hope. But it's often a vague or shapeless, subjective hope, which I don't know if that's much of a hope at all. Professor William Marston of NYU asked 3,000 people the question, what have you to live for? And he was shocked to discover that 94% were simply enduring the present while they waited for the future in some kind of vague hope. They waited for something to happen. They waited for next year. They waited for a better time. They waited for tomorrow. But friends, for Christians, our hope is not a vague optimism. Our hope is a very specific future reality. And Paul says that in verse 14 when he says, we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us up and bring us into his presence. Our hope is the resurrection because Jesus was raised from the dead. The hope for the Christian is that we will be raised too. And if that is true, then we can live right now spending down everything we have in this life by way of ourselves. We can risk it all for the sake of what God calls us to do in witness for him. That's an amazing, amazing reality. That you can spend your life on the work of God no matter how hard it becomes, no matter how much your reputation is tarnished, no matter how many times your feelings are hurt, no matter how many times, in Paul's case, you're even beaten because he knows that there's something better coming. 
And that is the nature of hope. And here's the result. I love the way this is expressed. The result is an extension of grace. He says grace extends to more and more people when Christians live their life like that. Thanksgiving increases. Even more people gain the treasure and the multiplication factor continues. Grace extends. To extend something is to stretch it out, to give it a boost, to lengthen it. Think of the extension cord that's going to go across your yard probably in just a handful of weeks to plug in those Christmas lights that you put on the tree. The extension cord carries power from one place to another. It stretches out the power so that the lights can go on even though they're away from the house. That's what Christians do. That's what Christians do. They have confidence that the Holy Spirit is working. They have hope in the resurrection, which all allows them to take risks. And then through their witness, grace extends and the lights go on to the people across the street. (laughs) The lights go on to the office across the hallway. The lights go on to the parents of your kids' friends on their sports team. Grace extends when Christians take this type of expenditure with their lives. And so, who is the one person that you need to pray for? Who's the one person right now that you need to trust the Spirit with? That you need to rest in your hope enough to risk for? Who's that person where you could be the extension cord to God. Who is it? Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time for you to have a conversation about the gospel with them. So we've seen the principle. God's power is displayed in your weakness. Are you able to change somebody's lives for eternity? No. But because you can't, when you talk to them, met with God's power, God's power is displayed. We've seen the charge that even though we are weak, we continue to speak in the gospel work. And now we see the main point. How can you live a life in such a way that navigates the difficulty of this world, of this reality, of a body that's wasting away? And the main point is this. Looking to the eternal weight of glory motivates our perseverance in gospel work. Looking to the eternal weight of glory motivates our perseverance in gospel work. We started this morning with the recognition that nobody really likes to talk about the reality that we will waste away. And in fact, People will spend thousands upon thousands of dollars to fight the inevitable. Life is fleeting. Time is short. Our bodies will waste away, whether by physical harm or old age. And because that's true, some people lose heart (laughs) and they're discouraged. And so when Paul says in verse 16, we do not lose heart, Just like he said back in verse 1, we talked about last week, we do not lose heart. 
We pay attention, we sit up, we pay attention to his logic because nobody wants to lose heart. Nobody wants to go through the difficulties of these life in despair. We all want to continue forward. And here's the core of why, why we can do that. The first reason why, verses 16 to 18, is even though our physical body is wasting away, we are experiencing daily renewal. If you're a Christian, you've experienced this. And it's amazing. This type of renewal that only God can give to you, the fact that your life could be terrible and you could still have joy, The fact of the matter that people could be horrible to you and you could still feel love for them. The fact that you could suffer physically and you can still be optimistic when things look bleak. Renewal happens in this way and God himself does it by the same Holy Spirit who indwells you. He renews our hearts. Even if, and perhaps especially when the persecution is hard, when your reputation is tarnished because you've risked something for the gospel. And that happens day by day. But more than that, I think, we see that God is doing something in us and through difficulty that will prepare us for something much greater. Verse 17 is a verse that you could think about for a very long time (laughs) and still struggle to grasp the depth of it. Not because you don't understand what it says, because I think we have a hard time understanding its significance. I've I've been thinking about this verse for days upon days. It says this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We understand the logic of it. We understand that pain of preparation often yields to something greater. A college student goes through pain in earning their degree by studying hard and accumulating knowledge, and in that pain, they get something greater. (laughs) They get a job. We know that the athlete, that's true for the athlete, right? The athlete practices and hits the weight room and prepares in ongoing training, and sometimes that training can be painful in its nature, but the benefit of what they receive when they're successful is far greater in their mind than the pain. And every single one of them would say the same thing. You never hear an athlete who just won the Super Bowl say, "Ah, I wish we didn't practice so hard. They all say, man, the pain was worth the gain, right? And so Paul gives us a similar type of logic. He says the difficulty that you experience in this life that's displaying the fact that you are really weak, this difficulty that you have because of gospel ministry, the difficulty of hurt feelings, the difficulty of tarnished reputation, the difficulty of physical, di- of physical difficulty, that's all actually serving to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory that will be ours. Now, I thought a lot about that, and honestly, I, just, I don't think I can still fully grasp it. I'm, I'm not sure that any of us can, because affliction in this life feels like a tremendous weight, doesn't it? 
And God is using that weight to prepare us for an infinitely greater weight, the weight of glory, a beautiful weight, a weight that we desire, an overpowering reality that becomes ours, the light of the glory of God experienced and taken in by us tips the scales of weight in such a way that our current afflictions, though feeling heavy, are actually perceived to be rather light and momentary. And the future reality of experiencing God in all of his glory as he tips the scales is actually incredibly heavy upon you. Heavy in the best type of way. Heavy that makes you look back and say, that wasn't hard at all back there. This is incredible in its nature. And it's eternal in its experience. And so we don't lose heart. (laughs) And we don't just evaluate life or our troubles or God's work based on what we see happening on the outside. And we don't just focus solely on the things that cause us pain, though they are many. Instead, we keep our eyes on what is happening on the inside and the things that are to come. Looking to the eternal weight of glory motivates our perseverance in gospel work. I want to close this morning by asking you what quarter you're in. What quarter are you in? Next month, I will turn 43 years old. And as I was talking about this with a friend of mine a couple weeks ago, who will turn 43 in December, we mused together that if everything goes really well the rest of the way, and if the Lord tarries and if he preserves us and we're generally healthy individuals, that that means that I'm probably at about halftime. If God would see fit for me to live into my mid-80s, that means that right now I'm at the halftime of life. And that's a sobering thought because halftime is a time where you look backwards. (laughs) You see the mistakes that you've made. You celebrate the successes that you've had, you realize that you've wasted more time than you thought. And you admit to yourself that you don't want to do that in the second half. That you want to make some changes so that as the clock moves down to zero, you've been able to win the game. I only have half of my life left. (laughs) maybe less. And I want to make sure that I spend the second half serving the Lord with everything I have because there's a weight. There's a weight of glory that awaits. The eternal glory of God himself. What quarter are you in?
And are you happy with how you've spent the time so far? What will you do with the remaining time on the clock? Don't get to the final few minutes of this game and look back and realize that you have wasted the opportunity. How are you going to spend your time and your treasure and your talent in such a way that points to an eternal weight of glory? Who are you personally going to invest in? Who needs to know this good news of Jesus Christ that is in your life right now and you haven't shared them, shared it with them yet? Maybe you lack the courage. Maybe you feel like you're a clay pot and you're too weak for such a great task. Looking to the eternal weight of glory motivates our perseverance in gospel work. And so look. Look. Let's pray. Father, help us to see and to know and to experience to be able to grasp even a little bit the nature of this eternal weight of glory. Father, I know that I am so short-sighted when it comes to such things. I pray that we would be able to let that motivation to have our confidence and our hope inform the way that we risk right now for you, that we would be people who spend down our days until the very end knowing that a weight of glory awaits. And so we've served you faithfully with everything that we've had, with everything that you give us, with every ounce of effort and intellect with every bit of reputation, with every dollar that you give us, God, help us to see and to know and to treasure you in such a way that it motivates this type of action. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.